welcome to the first full-length episode of the Avalanche Hour podcast. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The mission of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. I'm excited to roll out the first episode and have some great content to share with you all. I admit there have been a few bumps in the road while learning how to record and produce these podcasts. The last couple weeks have been a great learning experience for me. In this episode, we'll hear some stories and thoughts from professional backcountry skier Noah Howell. We will then dive into an interview with Colin Zacharias, where we talk about some risk management strategies that both professionals and recreational users can implement to help make safer decisions in avalanche terrain. Today's rotating dispatch from an avalanche forecast center comes to you from Scott Savage of the Sawtooth Avalanche Center. Noah Howell has been skiing powder in the backcountry and chasing personal ski mountaineering projects all over the planet for nearly 20 years. For 10 years, he skied, filmed, and produced with Powder Whore Productions. In 2013, he was named one of Backcountry Magazine's 50 Icons of Backcountry Skiing. He is currently guiding, traveling, and adventuring while still capturing it all on film and in written word versus blog NoahHowell.com. Noah is also a dedicated contributor to Ascent Magazine and WildSnow.com. Here's Noah with some thoughts on his own avalanche education and experience. I think the biggest learning experience for me was during my level two avalanche course. And I was young and hungry for that magic bullet. Like what is the formula that I need to know to keep myself safe and to, um, you know, outsmart and figure out this avalanche problem. Luckily, I had two amazing mentors, Tom Kimbrough and Brett Kobernick, and they were wise enough to teach us that there is no magic bullet. There is no formula. Um, You're never going to know what the snow is like underneath your feet. Um, Even digging a pit that's in a different location, it's like, It's rarely ever exactly where you're going to be skiing. So the truth is that you never are going to know. And I think that's really valuable. I think we, the mind takes a very rigid and uh, scientific and problematic, uh, you know, wants a solution for this. And there just isn't, it's always different. And you really rarely going to absolutely know. So taking that into account, how do you proceed? And, uh, they were excellent teachers and showed us to be aware and take in as much information as you can, but that you still won't know. And that it, backcountry skiing, being on the mountains is about the awareness and uh, taking in current information. And then as things change, what's that change doing to the snow, to the um, And how's that affecting it? And and where will you find avalanches and where will you not? Um, So huge thanks to those guys for kind of slowing me down and making me take a step back. And and that does lead to a conservative approach that since I don't know, I better choose my terrain 
very wisely and better back off and tone it down because even when you're quite certain uh, anomalies can happen, and I've seen that happen, had a friend trigger a large avalanche in, I believe it was low conditions, and everyone was blown away with this and, and surprised that this shouldn't have happened or, you know, wasn't forecast. So that is out there. And you need to keep that in mind because the risk is, is huge. You're playing with, uh, with the full, everything's on the line. Um, so that was huge aha for me. And I appreciate those mentors. And I hope that's still continuing in current education that's out there. Um, the next part would probably be that this is such an internal game. Um, most avalanches do occur when the forecast is known to be uh, considerable or high. And so clearly it's not uh, a matter of education, but of aligning with the conditions or someone somehow convinced themselves that they know better or that they can outsmart the game. So I think that's a big part is knowing yourself and your partners and what everyone's motive is um, and being able to tone that down and put the right groups together and the right objectives. I do think it's key to not ski for your objective, but ski to the conditions, know what, know where it's safe to ski for the day and where it's not. And then, then pick your objective that aligns with the proper conditions instead of, Oh, I really want to go ski Mount such and such. Let's go do that and try and force it when it's not ready. There, there is a time and place to ski every line and everything you want, but that might not be for years. Um, and so give yourself a big list of things that you want to do. And the bigger that list, the easier it is to find something that fits in with the conditions for the day. That's been huge. I, um, I did, uh, skied all the lines in the shooting gallery and it's 90 different lines here in the Wasatch mountains. And as I got closer to finishing, it was really hard to fit those lines into the right conditions. And there were a couple of days where I tried to push it and uh, I was, you know, pushed back and told, no, it's not, not time. But without that, without those objectives and that desire and that drive that, uh, you know, need for the summit or that certain objective, um, you can keep yourself out of a lot of danger. So watch yourself and watch your objectives. Uh, as far as experience, I have been caught in several avalanches, most of them, um, small variety. Um, and I, I was caught in a larger slide in the wrangles. Maybe I'll talk about that a little bit in, uh, I was on an expedition in the wrangle St. Elias range we had a strange grouping. It was uh, put together by a sponsor and there were video needs and photo concerns. Um, so it was a strange group with kind of mixed desires and we hadn't toured together as a group. Um, some of us had in little pockets, but not all of us together. So one day we were kind of lost, just wandering and the sun came out for the first time and started heating up the snowpack. And we got really spread out so that there wasn't good communication. And I remember hiking up the slope and shedding layers because it was so hot, but there was so much in my head, like, where are we going? Um, are we going to be able to shoot this? Because that was part of my job. 
Um, but I couldn't communicate with the group ahead because they were so far ahead. So this slope heated up and ended up avalanching. We, because we were spread out, only two of us were caught. I was one of those people. And, um, I was able to fight really hard and the avalanche kind of swept by me and I remained in place. But one of the others was carried the whole way. Luckily he was okay. It wasn't buried, but it was a very big slide and a close call. Um, we were practicing good travel and staying on a ridge somewhat. So only a few of us were out in the exposed area. So that was, that was good, but we didn't, we weren't communicating and there was so much going on in my head that I wasn't noticing that was what was currently going on with the snowpack. Um, so it's a good story in that we had some of the right protocols down and we made some of the right decisions, but also we, we messed up in, in certain ways uh, by being too far spread out and not having a clear objective that we all agreed upon and that we were um, committed to. So that leads me into the next important aspect I think is, is having those uh, protocols ingrained. You need to yell avalanche when there is an avalanche, then you need to fight and try and dig into the bed surface. If you can, um, that really saved me from going over a huge cliff by being able to dig into the bed surface and slow myself down and let it wash over me. If you do keep, if you do, if you are carried, um, you need to clear that airway um, before the snow sets up, if you're getting buried and then as a last ditch effort, thrust that hand or pull in an upward direction and give, give the uh, rescuing party a visual clue. Hopefully I, I don't hear that being discussed as much, but I think those are really important uh, items to, I don't know how you practice it because when it happens, it's so unreal and it's so uh, startling that you can freeze up but you need to do those items uh, as well as obviously the beacon, beacon drills and uh, rescue, di- rescue digging. And, um, but those are a little more, you have more time to, to do that. It's when these, those reactions that need to happen just instantly uh, yell avalanche and fight for your life um, because you are. So those are key. And I just would say that really for me, it's, it's more of an art than a science and I take it, uh, very seriously. Um, it's a game that, uh, you can't afford to lose and the, the stakes are high. So, um, but man, that sounds all serious and, and it's a, it's a fun, it's a fun game. If you can, if you can line those things up, line up the, the right conditions on the right terrain and, and it's, it's a magical magical sport and event. Um, hope there was something informational in there and, uh, yeah, enjoy. Colin Zacharias has been involved in the ski and avalanche industry since 1980. He is an accredited mountain and ski guide through the Association of Canadian Mountain Guides. He is the technical advisor to the Education Committee for the American Institute of Avalanche Research and Education, or ARI. Colin also works as a guiding and avalanche operations consultant 
and has enjoyed the opportunity to interact with guides and avalanche professionals from, from a variety of countries, including Canada, the U.S., New Zealand, Iceland, Switzerland, and Argentina. I caught up with Colin during a heli ski guide training, and we recorded this interview from the brand new Ruby 360 Lodge in the beautiful Ruby Mountains of Northeast Nevada. This lodge serves as the base of operations for Ruby Mountain Helicopter Experience. If you haven't heard of this amazing place and want to learn more about what is offered, head on over to helicopterskiing.com to book a heli-ski experience of a lifetime. dive into a little bit of the uh, specifics of some of that common language and methodology um, in terms of making a plan in the morning um, assessing the problem and then and then keeping people safe in the backcountry whether you're guiding or whether you're out there skiing with your friends well I think the <clears throat> there's kind of an international standard or guideline for risk management, and we call it our risk management process. And that's really identifying the risk, assessing the hazard, and then making a decision on how we're gonna manage or mitigate that risk. And <clears throat> that risk management process, as I said, is very similar between highways, backcountry ski areas, um, ski areas, heli-ski operations, etc. And I think one of the most compelling things is how does, how does this method translate to your average backcountry ski tour? Mm-hmm. So what can the backcountry rider, whether they're on snowmobile, snowshoes, um, backcountry skis, or a snowboard, what can they take away from the professional community? What tools do the professionals have that are also useful to the backcountry Rider. Right. I think that could be really, really beneficial to some of our listeners to, to talk about some of the strategies that these organizations are using. Yeah, so if you look at the professional community and the tools or strategies that, that we use that everyday backcountry riders can use, I think one of the most important ones is what we call small team decision making. Mm-hmm. What we do know is that small teams can may make better decisions than individuals. Not necessarily so. I mean, a good individual decision maker can make great decisions. But we see some advantages in small team decision making. And those advantages are, you know, kind of a collective wisdom or experience, um, kind of a collective local knowledge, for example, um, and also just slightly different abilities and expertise when it comes to making decisions and managing human bias. I think one of the things that a team of three, four, or five can do is if they're coordinated and have rules of engagement and a strategy for making decisions, they can make better decisions and do a better job of mitigating bias than an individual or a group of two, for example. Especially if they work together or ski together on a regular basis. Right? Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that we we really work on in small team decision-making as pros is we practice decision-making. We practice engaging as a group of professionals. 
and we practice everything from role playing for where somebody is a facilitator to engage the discussion to draw out the opinions and experience of the team and then we have these rules of engagement where we have it we make decisions based on consensus so we require consensus and that's different than just you know getting along or agreeing mm-hmm. consensus means we're all making the decisions as a unit um, and to do that we have to respect all opinions we have to encourage and engage people's opinion and then we also respect any one veto okay Colin well while small team decision making is a great tool for recreationalists what are some other strategies to manage risk in backcountry avalanche training well another big one that um, the pros employ is a pre-check plan that employs that uses a checklist so you know that whether it's like a Greyhound bus driver that does a walk around their vehicle or a pilot in the 737, you know, many professionals who work in high-risk industries use checklists. And professionals, <clears throat> avalanche forecasters, before they go in the backcountry, they kind of have a safety meeting in the morning with their group, their colleagues, their group of uh, workers. And that safety meeting has a standard checklist and it, it it covers weather factors what are the weather factors that can increase hazard or affect travel and or affect communication so of our hazard factors weather is a big one another hazard factor is the avalanche problem so what's the avalanche problem today or what's our primary concern today mm-hmm. and and the third thing is <clears throat> How are we, where are we going to go, and how are we going to manage that terrain? So we choose terrain, we have a strategy to choose terrain that manages the risk. So essentially, that pre-trip plan, that pre-trip checklist, it's a hazard checklist that goes through weather, snowpack factors, avalanche hazard factors, and then looks at the risk factors, and then comes up with a strategy to mitigate or manage the risk. So, a, a big one in that um, checklist is our terrain checklist. In a heli ski operation, we call it a run list. We break all of our terrain down into various backcountry ski runs. Um, if it's a, a ski area, avalanche control program, we have avalanche paths and we manage them through what we call control routes. And so we have a plan to move through the terrain. And we essentially, one of the big goals of this run list or um, terrain list is what we call terrain coding. So it's like where we open or close terrain. Scary is open terrain for the public. They close terrain for avalanche risk. Well, a backcountry heli-ski operation will do exactly the same thing. We'll look at all the available terrain. That day, we apply our current avalanche problem to the terrain. So we decide which terrain is safe to ski and which terrain is hazardous. And so we go through a coding method where we'll code a run open for gas skiing, closed for gas skiing, or requires further evaluation, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Um, And so what our objective is, is we're trying to reduce the probability of encountering avalanches by taking the current avalanche problem, applying it to the terrain, 
and deciding where we're going to go and how we're going to manage that terrain, we reduce our risk. And so this is something that any recreationalist group can do. They have a trip plan. They, they have a drainage that they're planning on going in. They can say, well, given today's hazard that we're getting from the local avalanche advisory, you know, <clears throat> where are they, what are the problem areas? And what's the terrain that we can avoid? And we can use photos, we can use a map, we can use a local guidebook, and we can decide, okay, if we have <clears throat> a wind slab on northeast aspects between 8,000 feet and 11,500 feet, that's a piece of terrain that we're going to avoid today. Right. And so what we do in heli-ski operation is we'll choose terrain that either avoids the problems or prevents, provides enough options that using good group control and safe travel techniques, we can reduce the exposure and carefully manage the terrain. And the whole goal is to reduce the risk. We know we can't eliminate the risk, but we can use very strategic methods to reduce the risk. And so in a heli-ski operation, the run list is very, very uh, useful and it's applicable to backcountry ski recreationalists. So it's really, you can boil it simply down to assess the hazard, decide where the problem areas are, identify what train you want to avoid and what train you can successfully use for that day. And if you do this in the safe environment of your home, you it's a debiasing strategy. You're not tempted by the train you're looking at in the field. So the theory is, if you're doing it as with a group of friends in your home, you can reduce the tendency to, you know, employ bias in the decision-making process. So, Because you know that big slope is going to look good with, you know, a foot of fresh powder on it. And exactly. you're going to want to ski it. Yeah, if you're a skier, we always say it's really hard to make a good decision at the top of the run when your skis are pointing down. Exactly. And that's that's the reality. Yeah. And so you're going to make a better decision when you read the advisory at home, identify the problem areas, decide what train you want to avoid, and then stick to it throughout the day. And one of the things with this so-called run list that we utilize is it's kind of employs another debicing strategy that we call the 24-hour rule. Okay, so you make your decision at home, you go out into the backcountry with your friends, and then you see that it's actually a little bit better than you thought it was going to be. Well, rather than changing your mind... That's in like, the field. In the field, that's the COP. Military people don't like that. It's the change of plans. That's how accidents happen. Right. You stick to your plan and say, okay, well, we can always ski it tomorrow, because... Once you got out there, you gathered new information, information that helps reduce your uncertainty, and then you can make a better decision tomorrow. And, and that kind of 24-hour rule, you stick to the plan you made in the morning, and you have less likelihood that you're going to encounter a problem. Sure. But if the flip side occurs, and it's more dangerous than you thought it was, or you see signs of instability as you're traveling through, you can always pull it back. Mm -hmm. So if you make snow observations at the field that identify weak layers or identify problems that you didn't know existed or that the advisories didn't catch, um, you can always pull back further. So we use 
field observations that we help verify our forecast to identify instability and to step back, but never to step step it out. Sure. So if we're going to step it out from the previous day, that's with additional information and with some good foresight and forethought. Mm-hmm. Backed up by the forecast, perhaps. Yeah, and, ex- and you know, our ex- field observations. Yeah, forecast, field observations, and expert opinion. Mm-hmm. Don't hesitate to ask people you know who have more experience than you and have a good ability to assess conditions. Right. You know, so I think, so we've talked really about small team decision making. We've talked about a pre trip planning and employing a checklist. We've talked about having kind of a train coding strategy or previewing terrain and opening and closing terrain prior to going to the backcountry. Those are all really important strategies to reduce your risk. Another one that's really important is good communication skills, field communication skills. And what we've noticed that's really been quite, um, I think, satisfying to see is that a lot of like, Backcountry snowboarders and skiers are taking family radios, mm-hmm. and they're they're they've got little radios in their pockets, and they can contact each other when they're afield. And that's exactly what pros have always done, and that's a great trend because what that does is we we think it's really important to travel together, to decide together. But when you need to manage group in hazardous terrain, sometimes you need to put some distance between you and your colleague. We know that we can't control the weather. We know yeah. we can cannot control what layers are in the snowpack, but we can control our terrain choices. Exactly. That's well said. And I think if we always say that the snowpack is the problem, the terrain is the solution. Sure. So we can, by carefully choosing our terrain, we can either reduce the likelihood that we're involved in an avalanche or reduce the consequences if we're caught. And I think that's one of the problematic things. If we if we look through a bevy of avalanche accidents, most of them, not all of them, of course, there's always surprises, there's always unexpected events, but there's certainly at least half or more that the weak layer is well known or the, the danger is known. And it's it's a large avalanche path like it's a big piece of terrain and so I I think that with a little bit of research a little bit of planning and some strategic tools you can significantly reduce your risk and in every situation where there's an accident or unfortunately a fatality somebody chose to go into that terrain yeah 90% is a well known and well quoted oft quoted statistic that 90% or more of avalanche fatalities, the avalanche was either triggered by the victim or someone in their party. Sure. And so that they were in avalanche terrain. And I think what we need to do is to be able to recognize avalanche-prone terrain and to have strategies to deal with it. Right. And so we've talked about small group decision-making. We've talked about making a trip plan. Um, and we've talked about communication in the field. Uh, are there any other strategies that you feel like uh, some of these larger guiding operations employ that, that 
that uh, could be translated to recreational users? Well, you know, I think one of the things that we do do, I think one of the hardest things for recreationalists is to identify where the snow is strong and where the snow is weak. Mm-hmm. It's it's easier to identify avalanche terrain than it is to identify, you know, weak snow, snow that's prone to avalanching. So in, in professional operations, they employ avalanche technicians and guides who are skilled at identifying problems within the snowpack and tracking how that snow forms over the terrain during the winter months and identifying <clears throat> where avalanche, the current avalanche problem is most likely to be prevalent. So for the recreationalist, they can't, they can't really hope to substitute 20, 30, 40 years of five-day-a-week observations, you know? So, right. so in a sense, in a sense, you don't want to try to be that person who's the avalanche expert. You know, what you want to do is listen to what they say. So you want to be able to recognize what their observations say. So in other words, their eyes and ears on the ground, the patterns that they recognize, they, they have a good interconnected information source where professionals talk to each other and they identify trends and patterns in terms of the avalanche phenomena. So they can answer the questions, are things getting better? Are things getting worse? Where are the problems? So they're out there digging snow profiles, they're out there conducting snowpack tests, doing explosive tests. Um, And somebody who's a backcountry recreationalist that's only going out once or twice a week isn't going to have that same depth of understanding of current patterns and current trends. So it's really important to employ the local avalanche advisory. And those advisories are built... um, on a couple of information sources. There's public information. Public submits observations to the avalanche advisories, but a lot of professionals do as well. So it's a it's a pretty big network of observations that are going into creating that daily avalanche forecast. Um, so I think what's really important is to spend the time to read it over the winter months and start to build those patterns in your own head and identify what the pros are saying about what's happening in the snowpack and what train to avoid, where the problem areas lie, et cetera, et cetera. And, and really, if you just read the bulletin, say you go out once or twice a week, if you read the bulletin once a week before you go out, it's certainly going to help. But if you follow it during the winter months, you're going to have a better picture of the patterns of how the winter snow is laying over the ground, how things are developing, where problem areas lie. And there's often accompanying blogs with those avalanche forecasts Mm -hmm. where pros talk about particular problems, why it's hard to forecast this particular problem, or what they think, why this problem is lingering, and some cautionary notes or what they should really watch out for, what people should be watching out for. So I think... You know, just reading the avalanche forecast or the daily advisory like you do, you know, the news, like the New York Times or NPR or CNN or whatever your news source is, if you just 
read this on a regular basis, it just helps you develop the patterns that these pros have embedded in their practice. And a better history of what's going on with the snow. Exactly. Yeah. And so the history really helps identify the present situation. Right. Um, so I'd like you to speak a little bit more about um, taking observations within the snowpack and how that may affect our decision-making when we're about to ski a slope? Well, that's a good question. I think with um, because the avalanche phenomenon is complex, everyone's, and everyone just wants to go in and optimize their enjoyment in the backcountry. The fun factor. Fun factor. People are looking for a silver bullet, really. They're right. looking for a solution. And so often... The, we say read the advisory, but we do understand a couple of things. The advisory is forecast for a region, and we're going into a specific valley or looking at a specific path or slope. And so, in a sense, it's the recreationalist's job to identify the risk on a local scale mm-hmm. from the forecast, which is on a regional or drainage-by-drainage drainage scale. And that's a tough one to do. So... When you take an avalanche course, you learn about how to conduct a snowpack test, for example, and look at snowpack stratigraphy or the layers of look for strong snow and weak snow within the snowpack. Um, <clears throat> and it's always a bit of a catch-22 because it can help on one hand, it can hinder on the other. Where it can really help is if you have good site selection skills, which take quite a bit of experience. So in other words, your observation site is relevant. It's similar to the area of concern. It's a similar aspect, a similar elevation, a similar snowpack structure to the the current avalanche problem that you're trying to identify. So if you're trying to localize this regional problem, you need to be able to identify some aspects of the snowpack. And so this is where some advanced skill with snowpack observations comes into play. Um, but what we stress is that we, we encourage people to conduct snow observations and to do snowpack tests and to help them identify problems like a weak layer, for example, a slab over a weak layer. If you see an obvious gray stripe in the snowpack and your snowpack test indicates potential weakness, you can use that information to pull back on your decision making. Mm-hmm. And that's an important tool, and that's a valuable aspect. Um, however, if you don't get a result in your snowpack test, or that particular one meter slice of snow that you're looking at indicates local, like strong snow, it's still, we don't advise stepping out based on that observation. Right. So, in other words, how we step out into how we ski more aggressive terrain or how we ski bigger lines is based on longer term observations and a bevy of information factors. So, for example, we look at, um, <clears throat> we compare, maybe we compare our snowpack test from one slope to another slope or compare one test, with, verify with a different type of test. Um, we compare how that snowpack is lying over this zone to a nearby zone. We get different opinions from different experts. Well, what do you think, Caleb? Mm-hmm. Like, 
what what slopes would you avoid today? What slopes would you ski today? So we use kind of a minimum of six, seven, eight different sources of information to identify stable snow. So in other words, our infer- our decision whether or not we ski a particular terrain should really be consistent with that decision that we made in the morning in our pre-trip plan. Right. And, and, and information that we gather in the field verifies our forecast. Um, if we see something that increases our uncertainty, we certainly pull back. But we don't often use one profile or one snowpack test to step it out. Right. We need just more information than that. And I think that's where you can go back over uh, many snow avalanche accidents in the last five years, and there is a trend of, you know, I don't know what percentage, but there is every year there's several accidents where someone's conducted a snowpack test, you know, made a decision based off that test and then got caught in an avalanche. Right. And, but there's many people that have conducted a test, saw a weak layer and pulled back, rightly so and safely so. Mm-hmm. But, um, so in other words, a general rule of thumb, unless you're a real avalanche expert, is use your snowpack test if you identify to identify weak layers in the snowpack, especially persistent weak layers that are hard to that linger for a long time and uh, are worth identifying in your local region. Um, and if you identify a problem in the snowpack, use that test result to pull back. But if you don't see any, you know weak layer in the snowpack, that's not necessarily a reason to step it out. Right. You need more information than that. You need more tasks from more sites. You need more opinions from different people and preferably experts to make those kind of decisions. Especially if it doesn't fit your trip plan. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, I would just advise people be consistent with your decision making, how you choose to make decisions and uh, gather information to verify your particular um, forecast um, and use snowpack information to pull it back. Um, but be, be careful when using the results of a single, don't hang your hat on a single test. Yeah. Be careful interpreting that result and uh, stepping it out from that result. That could be a problem. Especially if you have weak layers within the snowpack structure. Yeah. If you're getting stable results from snowpack tests, but you still have a um, bad snowpack structure, that's a pretty big red flag. Yeah, just a weak layer is a weak layer is a weak layer. Yeah. In some ways, it doesn't matter what the test says because maybe it doesn't react in the one-meter piece of snow that you're looking at. Maybe you move over 100 meters and you're in weaker snow and you get a, it reacts in that particular spot. So. You know, it's it's taken experts many... Any expert will tell you, even after 20 years of being in the business, it's it's hard to make a stability assessment from a single piece of information. Right. But if that single piece of information indicates instability, by all means, use that as a cautionary note and step it back. And always fall back to terrain choices. Yeah. Really, it's like, remember, it's how you reduce risk is through your terrain choices. Mm-hmm. That's a really good point. So, Colin, just in, uh, 
do you have do you have any other strategies you'd like to talk about? Well, you know, I think what we've talked about is we've really talked about kind of five strategic tools that pros use to make good decisions, and that's small team decision making, their pre-trip plan that employs a checklist, um, their kind of train coding strategy with uh, when they preview terrain, their field communication information exchange strategies, and really how they set themselves to interpret snowpack information. These are all um, strategies to help make good decisions in the backcountry. But I think one of the kind of, I think as a closing note, um, you just have to have, it's really about an attitude or a mindset when you go in the backcountry. How do you keep yourself safe? Caleb, I mean, how do you keep yourself safe? Like, how do I keep myself safe in the backcountry? There's certain guidelines that we have that just form the backbone of all of our decisions. And, um, you know, you asked me at the beginning of the session when we were setting up to talk about this, like, you've been in the industry for almost 40 years. How do you keep yourself safe? And I kind of thought back and I said, well, I think in some ways there's two, there's two things that really helped me out. One of them was I started backcountry skiing at a fairly young age and mountaineering at a young age. And many people don't see avalanches or don't get caught in avalanches for a while and builds an artificial sense of security or confidence. They think they know what they're doing. And I was 16 or 17 years old and alpine climbing the Adams in the summertime. And it's summer, you know, we don't have transceiver probe shovel, we're mountaineering. And we had a big storm overnight and we're going for a peak in the morning and we had good weather. And we're approaching this call, three of us roped up climbing this glacier and climbing a steep ice slope up to the call to access the final rock ridge to the summit. And we got caught in a avalanche that carried us down for a couple of hundred meters, all tangled up in the rope, heading down towards crevasses. And it was a terrifying incident. It was, we could have died. We could have been carried down another hundred meters into crevasses. Mm. And what it did for me is it just made me recognize the potential of what an avalanche can do. It it took an avalanche from a theoretical risk or hazard to an upfront personal encounter. And we got away, I just got buried to my waist, tangled up in the rope, as did the others. So we didn't have, in the end, we just dug herself out and went over to a safer route and climbed the peak via a safer route. Um, but I knew it was our route finding error that created the problem our inability to recognize the changing conditions and just our young, ambitious mindset. We just wanted to go for the summit. And so I kind of stepped back and said, you know, I got to do this right. If I'm going to be an alpine climber, if I'm going to be a backcountry ski tourer, I got to figure this out. Or you got to stop. Or I got to stop. Right. And I did recognize that. I'm like, I'm going to do this right or I'm not going to do it. Yeah. And so I, I had taken an awareness course at that point and I took a CA level one when I was 17, and then I got employed um, when I was 19 on avalanche control team, and I just focused on, okay, I love the mountains, I want to spend lots of time, but I recognize avalanches are a real hazard. Mm-hmm. 
And I dedicated my life to getting better at it. And I think one of the things that's really kept me safe is a fear of dying in avalanche and a vivid imagination that allows me to stand at the top of the slope to look down and as I picture myself skiing it, I also picture it avalanching and what that would look like. And that look is often terrifying. And I think, and I don't, well, I don't think that keeps me overly conservative. I think it keeps me realistic. Sure. It makes me recognize that every dog has his day and that slope can wait. And there's a time and place for everything. And it's a big picture pattern that I got to recognize. And when I go for that slope, it's got to be when I'm in a long-term trend of improving conditions. And, and the conditions are stable enough to make up for my error at or inability to assess the snowpack. You know, there's got to be, I can assess it to a degree, but there's a lot that I still don't know after even 37 years in the business. Right. And so it's just like, I think a realistic perspective is a healthy perspective. Sure. Uh, one tool that sometimes I use when I'm standing on top of slope that looks really tasty and it's going to be really good skiing, but I'm a little bit uncertain about is sometimes I try and picture what the accident report would be like, right? So, like, I try and figure out uh, what I'm missing, what holes in the Swiss cheese are lining up, um, and and I try and read that accident report. How that how would that accident report read before I ski the slope? That sounds a little bit like what what you're talking about. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, most times when you read the news report, which are granted superficial, sure, but they always say, "Oh yeah, there were a group of experienced backcountry skiers." Yeah, you know, and that had some knowledge, or they'd taken an avalanche course. And, you know, the bottom line is often the, the threat is recognizable mm-hmm. and the train is an avalanche path, right. like we said at the beginning of the discussion. And as backcountry decision makers, we've got to learn to do better than that. Mm-hmm. We've got to take the risk seriously and, at, and approach it realistically and at the same time optimize our enjoyment. We love skiing. Right. We love descending those powder slopes it's awesome yeah so you know for us to continue doing it we got to have a strategy and I think like we've been talking about for the last you know 45 minutes there's things we can learn from the pros and adapt to our our own personal strategies yeah so hopefully we've identified a couple here that people can take home and employ yeah I think we have and I really appreciate your time coming on the show here and uh, this is our this is our first podcast so I appreciate your patience with with the interview, and I really appreciate the the Royers, Mike, and Joe, and Francie bringing you out to Ruby Mountain Heli Ski to do some training with us. It's been very valuable over the last few days, and uh, thanks for your time. Well, it's been a pleasure. Let's keep doing it, and congratulations with the podcast. All right. Thanks, Colin. Thank you. Cheers. Here is Scott Savage from the Sawtooth Avalanche Center giving you the snowpack lowdown for his forecast area from the start of the 2016-17 season through Valentine's Day. 
snowpacks are kind of like snowflakes in that they're all unique. And this year has definitely been an outlier that will be remembered for a long time. We got started with some October storms that left snow in upper elevation and shady middle elevation terrain. Then a bout of high pressure in the first half of November led to some really amazing fall mountain biking, but didn't really help the snowpack too much. The uh, snowpack, if you want to call it that at that point in time, was either dirt or this really ugly crust-facet combination. And facets are those weak, crumbly, sugary crystals that don't stick together well and lead to persistent slab avalanches when they get buried eventually. So in mid-November and early December, we saw some much colder weather. We had some small storms, but nothing too big. And that cold weather really did uh, have an effect and continued that faceting process. So we did see some minor activity in wind-loaded areas with those storms, but mainly we created a really thin, weak, faceted snowpack that was just waiting for a load. So we'd see some bigger avalanche activity as soon as it got hit with a good load. And it sure got a load. So starting on about December 8th, a really unrelenting series of storms hit central Idaho. We had a widespread avalanche cycle in mid-December with persistent and deep persistent slabs failing on the facets and crusts that formed in October and November. Many alpine paths ran full track with crowns in the 4 to 10 foot range. Um, after all those weak layers had been flushed away, we had wind slab avalanches continuing to run during storms on both mid-storm weaknesses and on some subtle faceted weak layers and surface hoar that formed during short dry spells in between the seemingly never-ending December and January storms. So we'd get a storm that would last three or four days, and then we'd have a few days off, and during that real brief bit of high pressure, we'd get a little weak layer near the surface, either some surface or near-surface facets or a crust, and then we'd repeat the cycle, have another big storm come, and flush out some pretty good-sized avalanches, and uh, go from there. So while none of those weak layers really jumped out at you, they're all just weak enough to produce really widespread natural avalanche activity, given the barrage of storms that kept hitting Idaho. Um, through January 24th, the lower elevation snowpack was at near record levels, so anywhere from 200 to 600% of normal um, snow snowfall and snow depth in the Snake River Plain and south-central Idaho mountain valleys, so that'd be through Fairfield, Bellevue, Haley, Ketchum, and up to Stanley. So really deep snowpack. Uh, both Ketchum and Stanley had exceeded their seasonal snowfall averages already by January 24th, with both of them around 120 inches of snowfall. And the snowpack was about a meter and a half deep in both places, which gives you easy access anywhere and really off the hook for uh, really good riding and skiing conditions right outside of towns. Then uh, February rolled in. We began February with a 10-day prolonged storm cycle, including several atmospheric river events. So what is an atmospheric river anyways? Keep hearing this term being bantered around by the Weather Service. Well, an atmospheric river is a, a long, narrow ribbon in the atmosphere that carries a lot of water. So on average, it'll be about 200 to 400 miles wide, these atmospheric rivers. And on satellite images, it will look like a river. You'll see water kind of flowing, or it's water vapor, flowing from the Pacific onto the coast of the United States. Um, a typical atmospheric river will carry an amount of water vapor roughly equivalent to the average flow of water at the mouth of the Mississippi. So you get the idea that that is a lot of water, a big deluge. It's like having the fire hose pointed right at you. So when an atmospheric river hits a mountain range, it's going to dump in a big way. Well, in this last... 
uh, multi-day storm event. We got seven to twelve inches of water in ten days, which is a you know more maritime load. You, you expect to see that in California or the coastal Oregon, Washington mountains, or Alaska, but not really in interior Idaho, Montana, places like that. So seven to twelve inches of water in ten days um, went out with a big bang. The last few inches of water fell as rain in about a day, about thirty hours, up to eight to nine thousand feet, which is a pretty high rain line for us setting off a really impressive wet avalanche cycle in the valleys in the areas around Ketchum and Stanley and, and Fairfield. So we had avalanches taking out mature timber, putting those trees in dog walking parks, people's backyards, and in rivers, just kind of creating havoc. At the same time, the several feet of snow that fell in that 30 to 36 hour period in the Alpine produced uh, really large natural wind slab avalanches. Some of them were up to a mile wide in places. Um, so over the past two months, our middle elevation weather stations, we don't have any good water data at the upper elevations, but we received anywhere from 20 to 27 inches of water in two months. That's about 200 to 300 inches of snowfall. In the past month alone, we picked up 14 to 18 inches of water. That's about four, or 150 to 200 inches of snowfall in the last 30 days. At the Avalanche Center, at the Sawtooth Avalanche Center, we issued two extreme danger ratings this year, 19 days with high danger ratings, only 13 days with a moderate danger, and just one day with low danger, that's today, on Valentine's Day. Uh, previous to this year, we'd never issued an extreme danger rating, so we had two of them, and that was the first time ever. Typically, we'll see one to five days a year where we have high danger ratings, and seeing 21 days so far this year with higher extreme danger is really unheard of. So a, a really crazy winter so far. We're definitely already looking forward to checking out the destroyed timber and avalanche carnage this summer when we're out riding bikes and hiking underneath all these huge avalanche paths that are out in the mountains. I think it'll be really interesting to see when the, when the snow melts to see the big debris piles with trees in them and how big some of these avalanches ran. Because a lot of the evidence has been getting covered up as fast as it happens. So that's the past. Where does that leave us now? Well, the... The rain event saturated the entire snowpack below about 7,500 feet. So lower elevations have pretty much done their thing and can probably handle just about whatever Mother Nature may throw at them going forward this year. We've also formed stout crusts on all aspects below about 8,500 feet from that rain event. And then on many southwest through southeast facing slopes, we're also getting crusts from the high pressure of the past few days, so from the sunny skies. We do have some near-surface fastening and some isolated surface hoar that has grown on some partially shady and shady aspects in the past few days, but relatively strong temperature inversions, so that's where it's a lot warmer up high and colder down low in the valleys. So those inversions have held those processes, the near-surface fastening and surface hoar formation, uh, pretty much in check by keeping the upper elevation temperatures in the 20 to 40 degree range both day and night, so it's staying really warm up there. Uh, we'll probably have some weak interfaces between the current snow surface and future snowfall, but we're really not seeing any widespread weak layers below the current snow surface. So what's the crystal ball say for the week ahead? Well, with another series of atmospheric river events forecast to hit us from February 16th on for the foreseeable future, we're anticipating widespread wind slab avalanches, again in exposed terrain, and possibly some storm slab avalanches in sheltered terrain where more than about a foot of snow accumulates. 
Um, the avalanches in general should be most likely on those prime time 37 to 45 degree slopes. We, we could see some at the peak of instability on less steep slopes in the you know 30 to 35 degree range. But for the most part, without the or in the absence of any really widespread weak layers, we'll, we'll be most likely to see the avalanche activity on those steeper slopes. Uh, we'll expect the warm fluctuating temperatures that we're going to see in the next week to create some short-lived kind of mid-storm weaknesses that heal pretty quickly. So just different uh, snow densities and crystal types that are within the storm snow. And when I say relatively quickly, I'm saying that they'll heal in a couple days instead of weeks. Um, let's see, the intense February sun, we're getting to that time of the year, it'll cause uh, wet snow, excuse me, wet loose avalanche issues on sunny aspects following pretty much any storm. So the first day the sun pops out and for another day or two after that, you know, expect to see some wet loose avalanche activity following any significant storm with as high in the sky as the sun is getting at this point. For the longer term view, on the whole, we have an unusually deep, strong snowpack that'll keep us skiing corn for months, even if we were to quit snowing right now. Um, hopefully it doesn't quit snowing right now because no one's really uh, ready to hang up the boards yet. Well, thanks a lot for tuning in. You can get more information on our website at sawtoothavalanche.com. That'll give you conditions on our local area in south central Idaho. And you can also visit us on Facebook or follow us at sawtoothavi on Twitter and Instagram. I hope that you guys have enjoyed this first episode. There certainly was quite a bit of information in that one. I value and welcome any feedback that you have. Please email me at theavalanchehourpodcast at gmail.com or reach out to me on our Facebook page. Today's music came from Lobo Loco, courtesy of freemusicarchive.com, as well as riffs by the talented Adam Cook. Our artwork was created by Mike T. Thanks to all of the folks supporting the podcast, as well as Noah, Colin, and Scott for contributing your time. If you'd like to support the podcast, we have just under two weeks left in our Indiegogo campaign. Check it out. There's a link to the page from our Facebook page. Pledge some money, get some swag, feel good. Tune in next time for an interview with Utah Avalanche Center's Drew Hardesty, where we will talk about some of the issues created by an increasing number of users putting additional pressure on backcountry avalanche terrain. Until then, keep having fun, stay safe out there.